Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt's podcast. Each month, we will bring you the latest findings in Egyptological research and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Coptic, Islamic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. To suggest a topic for this program, please email us at podcast at rc.org. We are also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including virtual lectures and tours, by visiting our website at rc.org. You can also support our work by joining our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. This episode will continue our Kingship in Ancient Egypt series with Female Pharaohs Part 1. It will feature Dr. Yasmina Shazli, RC's Deputy Director of Research and Programs, in conversation with our guests, Dr. Mariam Ayad of the American University in Cairo and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson of George Mason University. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the episode. I am very pleased to have with me today Dr. Mariam Ayed and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson, who will be talking to us about female pharaohs in ancient Egypt. Dr. Mariam Ayed is an associate professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo. In 2020 to 2021, she was a visiting associate professor of women's studies and Near Eastern religions and a research associate of the Women's Studies and Religion program at Harvard Divinity School. Ayed studied Egyptology at AUC, the University of Toronto and Brown University, and was a tenured associate professor of art history and Egyptology at the University of Memphis before returning to Egypt in 2011. She is the author of God's Wife, God's Servant, The God's Wife of Amun, circa 740 to 525 BC, and the editor of three volumes on Coptic culture. Dr. Jacqueline Williamson is Associate Professor of Ancient Art and Archaeology at George Mason University. She has held several significant research positions, including at the Smithsonian and Harvard University. She is a senior member of the Tal al-Amarna expedition. She identified the Sun Temple of Nefertiti, which is the subject of her first book. Her ongoing work focuses on Nefertiti as well as gender and power hierarchies. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm very excited about this podcast. Thank you so and, much for having us here. It's a pleasure to join my, you today. My first question is for both of you. The fact that females could rule in ancient Egypt and that there were female pharaohs like, like Neferu Sobek, Hatshepsut and Cleopatra has given the women of ancient Egypt a reputation that they were ahead of their time in terms of status. How accurate is this perception? Dr. Ayed? I think it's very accurate, uh, especially considering how women were socialized in other ancient cultures, whether you look at uh, Achaemenid Persia or uh, even later in uh, Athens in the classical world and even the Roman period. So I think Egyptian women generally, not just at the at that level of the ruling class had it much better than their counterparts in many of the ancient societies and even some contemporary societies today. Dr. Williamson. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think one of the interesting things that we uh, sort of think today is that the um, 
women's rights are sort of going from a, an awkward and irrelevant past to a more progressive and powerful present. And so therefore women who hold positions of power in the past, we hold up as women worthies, as people who are significant and all of this. But in reality, as, as uh, Mariam pointed out, uh, the opposite is true, that um, we're not going on this simple progression. Uh, history is not so simplistic, and it's not on an irrevocable march towards anything. Uh, and so what we actually see is, especially in antiquity, um, that women were accorded positions of authority and power in a way that we today would find surprising because we're so biased about the quote-unquote primitiveness of the past. Uh, and of course, the idea of primitiveness of the past is based on the idea that anybody but us must therefore be primitive. And so yeah. that's obviously a problem. <laughs> that, is, that is a problem. And if uh, I may just interject here uh, for a minute uh, to tag on to what Jackie just said, I think it's a, a misapprehension and misrepresentation of history to think of it as a linear narrative because it never is. It's often much more complicated, even when we're dealing with a, a culture as long surviving as ancient Egypt, right? So we, yeah. we try to think of it as linear, as progressive also from old to middle to new. And, and this is just a construct for ancient Egypt and also in relation to what Jackie was just saying about ancient Egypt versus today, completely nonlinear and it's not so neat and tidy. I absolutely agree 100%. Okay, so let me ask Jackie a few questions. Egyptologists refer to Egyptian female rulers as kings. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Mm, that's a great, uh, well, one of the main reasons that we refer to them as kings is because that's how they self-identify. So we're kind of just working with how they call themselves. Uh, so in order to be a ruling individual in Egypt, in order to be able to have power to be recognized as being legitimate, uh, you have to be the, the living manifestation of the god Horus, mm -hmm. who is the son of Osiris and therefore the proper eternal Ma'at, king of Egypt, yeah. uh, or ruler of Egypt. And so therefore any ruler of Egypt must body these male concepts that is inherent to Horus and so a ruler must therefore if you, if a prop if a ruler is proper they are therefore Horus if they are mm. Horus then therefore they must be male and so when uh, individuals adopt this identity they become identified as Horus and Horus is inherently the, the office of kingship itself is inherently male mm -hmm. so uh, but again it's one of the things I think that um, Mariam and I both have, have talked about, as well as I think you as well, that um, the office of kingship is not so binary. You know, we, we today have this tendency to always talk about power in Egypt as embodied by kings, king this and king that. But that's also a modern bias. The, the Egypt, I don't think the Egyptians would have seen it that way. The, the queen was a goddess in the same way that the king was a god, and without her, he lost a lot of his legitimacy in the same way that he was the embodiment of the son of Ray and Horus and all these other gods. She was the embodiment of Isis and Hathor and all these other deities as well. And without that sort of uh, matching binary, we don't have a legitimate ruling family at all. And so 
you know, you never find a king who's a bachelor, <laughs> for yeah. example. You know, so yeah. Uh, and even when we do have queens who are, who uh, accede to the throne and or individuals who accede to the throne who are female who become king, they then figure out a way to deal with the lack of that feminine, uh, I shouldn't say feminine, female uh, aspect, right? So uh, chefs that turn to Nefru, right? And things like this, right? So, you know, we must have the male and female components of rulership uh, in order to properly have king. Uh, and kings themselves were actually not universally seen as only male either. A lot of their titles incorporate female elements. And so it's clear that kings are not a simplistic uh, only male sort of identity. They're also sort of, I don't know, a, a more amorphous creature than that. They are indeed divine. And the divine in ancient Egypt is an amorphous creature. It doesn't uh, it does, it's not a simplistic binary black and white. So that was probably way too long an answer that you wanted. No, no, it's a good answer. <laughs> it's a very good answer. But I, I have a question, but you know, it, it is the, the concept of kingship is much more complex than we yeah. would think, but it's still a male occupation. So how did female rulers legitimize their rule? They have to compensate somehow for the Absolutely. fact that they were not male. Yeah, yeah, and that was something we just sort of talked about as well, right? So the idea yeah. was, of course, that you know once you acceded to power as a female and you wanted to wield power in that you know royal you know sort of identity sort of sense, that then you did have to figure out a way to uh, you know be part of Egyptian tradition, and it's something that we see Hatshepsut doing and the other female rulers, female kings is again adopting this chorus identity as a means to identify themselves as the proper legitimate king. Uh, one of the things too that I think that I, I find sort of intriguing is this idea of legitimation itself. This is something I've been kind of scratching my head about because to us today, legitimation suggests a degree of almost subterfuge, right? That you're kind of trying to convince someone that you're telling them the truth, right? You know, that like, you know, of course we, we today don't really trust our politicians. And so perhaps, you know, that's the origin of us kind of, oh, you know, legitimation, that can be a bad thing. Um, but it, I don't know that the ancient world would have seen it that way. When, when we say things like propaganda and legitimation, they carry with it this sort of overtone, these modern overtones of attempting to persuade someone to have an opinion they perhaps don't already have. Um, it may not have been the case that the Egyptians were so up in arms about the idea of a person who is not, you know, physically embodied in a male body mm -hmm. having power. That may not have been as much of a problem to them as we as moderns, who again are, are steeped in this sort of modern uh, understanding of women uh, might have assumed. So it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting question, you know, like I, I don't know that they necessarily had to um, work to legitimate themselves, if you know what I mean, like in, mm -hmm. in the way that we think of, uh, you know, in, in, uh, as, as in working against a, a negative assumption that they need to get off the stage, you know what I mean? You know, I like uh, what Jackie just said a lot about how legitimation is a modern concept tied very mm -hmm. closely to propaganda. 
and how these may have negative connotations. So I think when we're talking about Egyptian kingship, uh, maybe a different word to use would be investiture. Mm. So when, well, I like that word. Yeah. When, when the person becomes a ruler, when they ascend to the throne, they are invested with certain attributes that are conferred upon them by the gods. And that investiture is what makes that person a king. So mm. investiture is about an office. It's about becoming equipped to hold that office. And I think it may more accurately describe all the different rituals involved in the coronation process. And later on in the celebration of the Sad Festival. That's just an idea. Yeah, that's very I, I, interesting. Okay, let's move to Hatshepsut since you brought her up, Jackie. So, <laughs> Mariam, of course, Hatshepsut is one of the, the best known Egyptian female rulers. How did she ascend the throne? Well, see, that's a big mystery, right? Because if you read the history books that are attempting to present a linear narrative, they would use a lot of these terms that Jackie just pointed to, legitimation, mm -hmm. uh, propaganda, and they would use these terms in, um, in very degradatory ways uh, or very biased ways. And uh, the idea is for her to sell to her people, her idea of being king. There's also an assumption that she usurped power. So even sometimes that's stated outright in the history books uh, that are, unfortunately our students read because they, there are no alternatives yet. Or you're going to write the alternative. Well, both not of you. Quite, <laughs> not quite, but at least we're trying to push back. Um, yeah. But it's, um, um, I, I think that she came in at the moment of history where there was a power vacuum and she had to set up, step up to fulfill the role of a king, not to subvert the sort of male dominance uh, at the time, if you want to use a very modern term often misused, but rather to carry on with the legitimacy of the ruling family because she was a full-blooded royal person um, on both sides, the parental and the maternal, right? And it went back to generations, all the way to the founder of the 18th dynasty, to his ancestors who expelled the Hyksos. So she had the bloodline. And in that sense, uh, you know, uh, finding herself, uh, the country finding itself really with no mature, legitimate king. Uh, her husband, Moses, having just died, her stepson, the future of Moses III being just a child. So she had to step in into that power vacuum. And she did that gradually. So we see her sometimes uh, wearing still uh, feminine garb, but with a Nemes headdress, uh, like in the statue in the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, and she, her body still feminine uh, with breasts, uh, rounded breasts and a uh, narrow waist. And then there is a gradual progression in her iconography. And what I still have not seen is an attempt to not just chronologically um, study her statuary and the change in iconography, but also to look at the placement of these statues and the public view of them mm -hmm. and how these statues may have actually been placed in different places depending on viewership. So when I've seen the statues uh, studied and uh, someone I think wanted to use a very modern term about Hatshepsut go going under the knife to do a gender transformation yeah. <clears throat> based on her statuary, but I think a, a non-linear approach to her iconography that is more spatial 
would probably yield more accurate results and more informative. You are listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. More information about our operations and programs can be found at rc.org. And if you would like to support the RC podcast, please visit rc.org slash podcast. Now we will go back to our episode with Dr. Maryam Ayad and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson. Um, but I have a question because, yeah. because you said that she stepped, she stepped in to fill the power vacuum, which yeah. happens all the time in Egyptian history. You have women ruling on behalf of their sons who are too young to rule on their own. It, but it happened more several times in, in Egyptian history. What, what was different about Hatshepsut? What, why did she end up being pharaoh rather than regent on behalf of a younger heir? I think it's the duration of the time, but also I'm trying to think of other times when we know for sure that uh, females became regents. Mm-hmm. I guess we could, we could look at Pepe, right? Yeah. And his mother. Uh, yeah. At the same time, we also see that um, she, uh, Pepe's mother, also really heavily manipulated a lot of her iconography, um, turning her, you know, you, that the creating the first example of the vulture crown, you know, mm-hmm. all of this associating her not only with Mut, but also Isis and etc. Um, so is Isis and her son is Horus sitting on her lap. Exactly. Yeah. The, her, her lap being the throne. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so we definitely have, you know, that, that sort of thing. I I, I mean, you know, so we do definitely have examples of women, you know, stepping into positions of regency, but I I don't know that in in many of those instances, we don't also see a say the same kind of political situation that Hatshepsut found herself in, you know, like she's, they, I mean, relatively recent for about a hundred years before her, they had just come out of the intermediate period. And for the Egyptian perspective, that's, you know, pretty a brief amount of time. And they were terrified at the idea of losing that stability that they had finally regained. And, you know, again, that, and also the memory of the first intermediate period was vivid and quite frightening for them, right? We see that in their histories and, their, and how they talk about intermediate periods. They're aware of them yeah. and they freak them out. And so, you know, it's a question of whether or not did Hatshepsut then look at that history and look at her current situation and go, I've got a two-year-old, you yeah. know, who, you know, and, and not only that, but, you know, that it doesn't seem like she had any other sort of scaffolding of royal power around her. And so did she then say, you know what, we need somebody who is an inside power player. And she was, as Miriam said, she said she's the inside power player par excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, she mm-hmm. was born into royal power. She was a queen herself. She knew everyone, obviously. You know, she was obviously very well connected, not only to the priesthood, but everybody else. Yeah. So, you know, it's an interesting, it's, so it seems to, anyway, it seems to me that I, I think Mariam is 100% right. I think that she found herself in, in a very unique political situation where she needed to take power in a very immediate and active way. And there are two things to um, underscore what Jackie just said um, in, um, in the Hatshepsut inscription in, um, in the space Artemis, she claims mm-hmm. she actually expelled the Hyksos. So the memory of that uh-huh. power dominating Egypt was still very much alive. Now, a lot of our 
former professors and more senior colleagues would look at that inscription and say that it's a piece of propaganda that she's yeah. trying to make herself. But I think Jackie's, Jackie's view of that event as being traumatic and mm. her being able to fulfill that role in a way to make sure that does, that does not happen. Yeah. Again, and, and she does mention specifically, you know, going to specific areas in the Delta in that inscription. And the other thing is to people often forget that the late 17th dynasty, which is part of the family of the 18th mm. dynasty, and the early 18th dynasty had some very powerful females. Yes. Were themselves involved in the expansion of the Hyksos in leading the army that eventually led to their ex expansion when their sons were very young. Yeah. So you, you had an ancestor of Hatshepsut who has done exactly the same. One son is too young, another is, has just been killed. So she's, her husband just died in battle. So she uh, charges on. And then when the children are old enough, they take over the leadership of the army. Mm -hmm. And what we know of, of the early 18th dynasty is that people very much were, were very much aware of their past, uh, mm -hmm. their family histories, as well as the general past of the country. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, it's such a great point. I mean, you know, and, and pivoting off of that, right, we also found the, the golden flies with... Um, uh, oh, yeah, exactly. And, and so this is a clear indication that she is being in some way actively associated with war and aggression and being recognized as being part of that, you know, sort of effort, you know, this, this war effort, you know, that she's yeah. kind of recognition, you know, and I know that there's been this um, uh, tendency, I think, in some scholars to look at them as like, oh, her, her son must have given them to, yeah. her, you know, like, and it's like, I, I mean, it's like, again, this is an example of us yeah. modern projecting our sort of societal structure onto them. This is not a little boy going, look, mommy, I got a golden fly. Like, that's not what's going on here. You know, like, it's just, you know, that mm -hmm. you don't, we have no examples of that kind of gift giving happening within the funerary environment. You know, like this is the only thing that you take with me, with you into that environment is something that you yourself, that it's, that is associated with you yourself and your identity and who you mm. are continue for eternity so you know those golden flies are likely an indication of her role her significance her you know and all of this which of course associates her directly with war you know yeah. so you know she wasn't sitting at home knitting sweaters you know she yeah. you know, she was actually ruling the country so yeah. you know it's this is you know and and she's and Maryam's exactly right that like what so what we're seeing here are women had Shepsut is from a line of women who have stepped up and stepped into power. Um, and that's normative, you know, that's fine for the, you know, and that's, so again, her political situation is unique, you know, to, you know, and I don't, I don't know that her people would have had the banana about it that we think they, they would have had, you know, like, I just, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, like, we don't, we don't get any specific, like, so, you know, of course, I'm an expert in Akhenaten. And so like Akhenaten himself says on the boundary seal that there's a lot of the people are talking bad things about him from like mm. year one up until, you know, he moves to Amarna. And so we have this clear indication of murmurs of discontent, you know, and we get no such evidence from Hatshepsut. You know, not only do we not get any such evidence, but also there is such a strong modern bias against yeah. this woman and against women in ancient Egypt in general. Uh, I'll just pivot and, uh, yeah. and 
got in my recent work on gender bias. Yeah. Seriously, I mean, so Hatshepsut is often labeled as a usurper, as using the, these uh, mm. false claims, false claims, right? How not, dare she? How dare she? <laughs> and, and yet, to Jackie's point, no one, none of her contemporaries seem to denigrate her. It's the modern scholars looking at ancient graffiti. That yeah, it's the, it's the ancient graffiti. I was going well, to mention that. The, the woman in yeah. that particular graffiti does not wear the crown. Uh -huh. It's a tripartite regular headdress of any 18th dynasty elite woman. Mm -hmm. The yep. modern assumption by our esteemed colleagues is that it must be Hatshepsut being taken yeah. from mm. behind, whatever. But but that's 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 our modern projection into how can we denigrate this woman? Absolutely. Well, and also too, I mean, and that's such a clever point because you know it's our modern. Now, this might be an inappropriate thing, perhaps, to potentially discuss, but, um, you know, the ancient Egypt was not shy about sex and sexuality. And in many ways, they celebrated it. Um, it's our mm -hmm. modern question of the idea of sex being in some way dirty or bad that leads us to look at that graffito as an indication of her being insulted. But see, the assumption that it's her is exactly. bad. Exactly, exactly. The name is not there. there. The crown is not worn mm -hmm. by the female figure. Right. right. You know, and so it's not, it's, uh, it's so many different layers that it's like, not only do we assume that it must be her, we're also then assuming that this gesture must be a gesture of insult. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's all of these layers of modern assumptions that we're placing on that thing that, again, says far more about ourselves and our own issues than it does about Egypt. And in fact, that's actually, I think as, as Miriam's work has been brilliantly demonstrating so mm -hmm. much of our understanding of women in the past is actually more of a reflection about us and our yeah. concepts and wrestling through our identities than it is anything to do with them. And very, the, very true. And the push to see that as fact in history books and, yes. and the, and the myth is perpetuated because yeah. if you're a young freshman reading, you know, a standard history book on ancient Egypt mm -hmm. for the first time, you read that, you take it as fact, and then that affects how you later interpret evidence when you yourself become an, uh, a professional Egyptologist. So yeah. it's not just um, bias in the field in general, but uh, bias inherently in ourselves, inherent bias. How can we break away from the mindset that says, let's understand the these ancient people according to our own norms and let's start to understand them on their own terms mm -hmm. exactly Absolutely. okay so my my i have another question what was uh Hatshepsut's uh, relationship with Tutmosis the third and why did he try to eradicate her memory Mario? Uh, I think we should both answer the question. Okay, sure. First, but uh, I think it didn't happen immediately after his ascension mm -hmm. to the throne. It took yeah. about 20 years for the effort to start to erase her name and, and her iconography. And then when the erasure happened, it wasn't just a matter of replacing his name uh, and putting it where hers was, but it was a very complicated process where occasionally the name of his father, Tutmosis II, was placed. Another, other occasions where the name of the of her father, his grandfather, Tutmosis the first, was 
was placed. So for the longest time, this whole idea of which Tutmosis came first was a big problem in Egyptology, the Tutmosis succession, because of that mm. whole effort. Um, it's not quite clear why he would do that. Mm -hmm. um, people have speculated that she acted against Ma'at being a woman herself, that it was a restoration of some cosmic order. Um, it could be that, and it could be something very mundane happening in the palace. We don't know about mm -hmm. the other powerful women at the time. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened to her daughter, Nefru-Ra, and the kind of power she may have held as God's wife, mm -hmm. as Shepsut herself was. And what we do know is that starting with the reign of Tutmosis III, uh, the office of God's wife, which had been held by all the illustrious women of the early 18th dynasty and Hatshepsut often used it as their own uh, favorite title, often using it alone, even after becoming king. That title, starting with the reign of Moses III, becomes very obscure. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a correlation here that it, it is possible that some other woman was accumulating a lot of power. We don't know because it's it, it didn't actually materialize yeah. if that was the case. But uh, I think there are very many gaps in our knowledge. And I think an earlier generation of Egyptologists was so desperate to try and present a linear story that they filled in the gaps. Mm. We have someone like Helk, a German Egyptologist, mm. who would actually fill in the lacuna of <laughs> the text that he would to prove that the Hyksos were Aryan, right? Yeah. So, so this idea of filling in the gaps sometimes was taken to great lengths with great mm. repercussions. Hell was called out on it because it was very blatant and because they were defeated ultimately. Mm. But um, there are other attempts to fill in the gaps in the interpretation of the evidence. So no one is as blatant as Hell now by trying to insert hieroglyphs, but people insert their own ideas and they do not Often, oftentimes they do not couch their ideas as being specul speculative or as yeah. being wrong, and instead they're presented as fact. And I think that's where the danger is. So the short answer is I really don't know why he would erase her name 20 years in, mm. but we can mm -hmm. speculate as long as we label our speculation as speculation. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and I think um, one of the things that's very um, significant here, as, as Mariam pointed out, is the idea of this huge gap of time. So if you're looking to immediately punish a predecessor, like if you're furious with that predecessor and you want to immediately destroy them, we see examples of pharaohs going about that absolutely immediately. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and again, using Akhenaten as an example, um, as soon as he kind of gets his power base together, he starts attacking the names of traditional gods and even even uh, representations of his own father and all of this. And then conversely, when he uh, dies, um, his images and et cetera are attacked immediately, right? It's not, yeah. you know, that's, it's not like everyone waited for a while, you know, like, so um, this gap between uh, Hatshepsut's death and the destruction of her monuments indicates that there must be something else political going on. Yeah. There's and, a political trigger. <laughs> exactly. You know, and so what might that be? And I think it's I think Dimitri Labory might have suggested that I think this is true. I, I could be getting it wrong, but I think he proposed the idea that Tutmosis the third is concerned for the legitimation and succession of his own son. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that uh, of course, if we still, if Neferu-Ray was still alive, Neferu-Ray is technically more legitimate and in more direct line to the throne than Tutmosis III's kid because she, Neferu-Ray is technically the child of two kings. <clears throat> and she also was raised up to an incredibly high rank by Hatshepsut because she used Neferu-Ray to sort of stand in as almost the female component of her male kingship. And so was Neferu-Ray a threat to Tutmosis III's own child? Uh, it's entirely possible. And of course, you know, uh, uh, we have multiple examples uh, throughout all of history, all over the world, of parents doing some rather remarkable things to make sure that their children come to the throne after them. So, you know, it, this may be a gesture of an attempt to legitimate his own son or to hold on to power or something else. But again, like the idea that this must be an immediate punishment for her holding power as a woman, we would have seen that backlash immediately, not 20 years later. This, you know, he wouldn't have sat on that for, for two decades. You know, yeah. this would have been an immediate thing, uh, especially if the entire, because uh, again, that also implies that the whole society wanted to quote unquote punish her. And so if an entire society wants to punish an individual, they do so collectively immediately, not 20 years later when the memory is then uh, uh, becomes neutral, you know, um, and so, you know, it's it's an interesting question. You know, an example of the immediate uh, backlash that Jackie's just referred to is the uh, post-Amarna restoration. Right? Absolutely, yeah. So they yeah. Great. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, so the was personal, and the restoration of the traditional religion was was promptly uh, implemented. So when they wanted something done quickly, they could do it. They could achieve it. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, Tadankamun was born Tadankaten and changed his name as you know as soon as I mean, immediate, almost immediately. So you know, it's yeah, it's an it's an interesting. It, it is an interesting. Hashemtid is fascinating. You know, it, it's one of those things that's like we, you know, but we have these tantalizing gaps in our evidence, and so as Mariam said, I think that one of the most important things that we need to do as uh, scholars is to always label our speculation as speculation, you know, that, yeah. you know, we don't, there's a lot of stuff that we just don't know. And we, we also, as a, one of the problems is that as human beings, we don't like that. We don't like not knowing. And so we kind of want to make up a story to fill in that gap. But that also ends up, as Mariam was also saying, is that prevents it, that, that creates a barrier then to further, to actual learning. Because if you if you created a story that you want to be true, then you'll look to legitimate your own story, you know, using the pregnant word legitimation, uh, rather than, you know, uh, than genuinely having a kind of open mind towards the data. You just listened to part one of the Female Pharaohs podcast episode, which continues our Kingship in Ancient Egypt series. Our next podcast episode will be part two of the Female Pharaohs episode with our guests, Dr. Mariam Ayad and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson. Please visit our website at www.rc.org for more information or contact us at podcast at rc.org. This podcast is also available on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.